0: welcome to Live Like the World is Dying, the podcast that focuses on, well, what feels like the end times. I'm your host, Margaret Kiljoy. This week, I'm talking with Anya, a member of the Jane Addams Collective out of New York City. The Jane Addams Collective is an anarchist collective that works on mental health issues. It's mostly mental health professionals who work on basically developing forms of self-therapy and that are applicable to when people don't have access to traditional therapy or don't want the hierarchical model of traditional therapy. They also have done a lot of work and written a short book about mutual aid and trauma and basically the how trauma comes up in disaster situations and what we can do about it. So I'm very excited to have Anya on the podcast. I know I promised that this week I was going to talk to a friend of mine who just came back from the autonomous regions of um, northern Syria, and I have that interview done, but I feel like this particular one kind of needs to go up as soon as possible. Um, uh, one result of my own self-isolation is that I don't have access to my usual recording space. Uh, I actually live off-grid without real internet and without electricity, so sometimes I have kind of limited access to certain things, and the place I normally record has someone living there who uh, can't really have people over right now. So I apologize in advance for the audio quality of the interview, um, but I think it's absolutely worth hearing anyway, and I, I hope you enjoy it. Before the interview gets started, I just want to say a few words on my own about mutual aid in this particular crisis. I think that one of the things that we're watching happen is the failure of national-level governments to keep us safe, but an incredible amount of work done both on the international level and at the local level, to and on the individual level, to try and keep each other safe during, uh, during this crisis. And I think in a lot of ways that's a natural prefiguration of what society probably... Should look like where experts on an international level are able to advise local infrastructure about how best to act, without actually like having the power at the top. Instead, having the power at the bottom, we can keep each other safe. And the other thing I want to say is that uh, I, you know, I'm I'm cooped up right now, but a lot of people aren't. A lot of people are out there working their jobs either because they have some shit service class work job where their boss won't shut down the cafe in during a pandemic or people are out there working at day shelters for homeless people or working in health or delivering food or working in the other essential things that um that we need in order to stay safe as a society and not only does my heart and my my heart go out to people who are, are doing that work but I also want to suggest that in a society that we hope to build, hopefully that most dangerous work, that sort of frontline work, is something that people can cycle through. People can come in and out of. This isn't really my own idea. This is coming from someone I care about who you know, works at a day shelter and realizes that people will die if they stop going to work. So they still go to work, but it is an awful lot to deal with right now. And I hope that whatever happens, none of us really know what's going to happen. I hope that we're able to not just cheer on people who are doing that kind of work, but figure out how some of us who are capable can step up and take some of the burden off of those people and maybe like cycle people in and out of certain tasks. I don't know, something to think about. Maybe I'm completely off base. I don't know. But anyway, here's the interview, and I hope you get as much out of it as I did. So, welcome to the podcast. If you want to introduce yourself with uh, your name, Your pronouns and any political or organizational affiliations that you want to mention. Uh,
1: Yeah, um, my name is Anya. She/her. I am an anarchist, um, and I have I'm in Jane Adams, the Jane Adams Collective. Um, It's a radical anarchist mental health collective that's been around for about five years. Um, I do a few other things and do work out of the base in Brooklyn as well.
0: Okay. Um, Do you want to? So I, I put out a call to try and find basically anarchist or radical mental health professionals to talk about kind of what's been going on right now in terms of uh, I know myself um, I know I've been practicing social distancing for a couple of weeks already and obviously the number of people doing that have has just been going up and of course that is a even for an introvert like me like not the easiest thing in the in this world and. So I, I guess I wanted to talk to you about that, about the effects of social distancing and how we can manage them. Absolutely.
1: And that's particularly important considering we're already sort of behind in terms of like isolation. There's mm-hmm. been sort of a growing loneliness ep- epidemic in the last like few years, partly due to capitalism, but due to other things as well, um, that's sort of like, set us in an off footing here like people have fewer friends and reliable the uh, social connections than they used to in a lot of like meaningful ways um often through no fault of their own but it like the social distancing probably feels more onerous when there's already a lack of genuine social connection yeah um, yeah. yeah and the anxiety that's sort of like a, the virus well also very scary and a problem is like a face for people's anxiety about other existing collapse in their own lives as well. And it's like a very notable and present face. So it's really easy to like think of that one thing as the problem when it's showing the inefficiencies and the like breakages and like centralization and hierarchical responses to things.
0: So what do we do about it? So what what do we do for someone who's listening to this podcast who, you know, is going to be practicing social distancing. I guess I want to talk to you a little bit about that. And then I also want to talk to you about people who have to, who aren't able to practice social distancing, people who, you know, do social work or healthcare work or just basically like are continuing to be in high-risk situations um, about how to manage that kind of fear and anxiety. But I want to start maybe with, with the social distancing aspect.
1: Absolutely. Um, in all of the, like, obviously the necessity of having, like, uh, reducing the risk collectively, uh, for like community spread of the, of COVID-19 is like pretty reasonable. Um, a lot of the like social things that one would do to try to like maintain their sanity in a stressful time of any sort apply pretty broadly here. Um, trying to like actively maintain at least like virtually the connections you have, Um, It's very easy to like get into an out of sight, out of mind um, sort of a thing when you're alone and especially when you're lonely um, and that sort of perpetuates itself. So even if you're like making a point of reaching out to who do I know around here? Who do I know who might be doing the same thing? Um, And since you're not like physically able to be around people, if you're doing the ultimate version of the the, like isolation, um, like having those connections across broader distances or like to your family across the country, if they're there somewhere or like, you know, it doesn't need to be your next door neighbor either. Um, some sense of connection and someone to talk to is, uh, like super vital. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And if you don't have as many of those, uh, finding like, uh, there, there's a fair number of like other ways to try to like build new connections, at least, technologically i'm not a huge fan of them but if you're very lonely they are helpful sometimes.
0: <laughs> can you give me an example even though you're not a huge fan of it <laughs>
1: um yeah i mean any of the like the centralization of all like the websites and message boards where it's like you can go on a thread about something or go on reddit or like find a discord chat room that has like interesting people in it who you can talk to about things you care about like th- those can be outlets um but uh I think they're useful to an extent and they can reduce some of the degree to which like you feel isolated or lonely. But um, a lot of times the nature of technological distance sort of like leaves something that's qualitative about human interaction out of it. Mm -hmm. Um, And though you can sort of abate some of your loneliness as far as like knowing that someone is listening to what you're saying and like interacting with someone, there's a lot of aspects of what we need out of human interaction that are physically interpersonal even if you're not like touching someone having someone there seeing their gestures getting an idea of like the the, those things are very different when they're mediated through a technological lens particularly one that's like uh organized and designed for the purpose of developing capital or servicing ads
0: yeah that makes sense i mean yeah you know yesterday one of my neighbors uh I, i live rurally and someone who lives on the other side of the hill is me Uh, We met at the top of the hill, and me and and their kid just basically sat, you know, six feet apart and talked about our lives. And it was very strange uh, to have this so adorable, non connected uh, picnic of sorts. But, um, so would, would you say that one of the reasons, so you say that you're not as excited about the technological solutions, is that also? is there a difference between reaching out to people that you already know technologically versus the kind of like message board forum type of connections?
1: Yeah. Yeah. There's like both a difference in knowing like what kind of information you can get from someone, what your relationship is like is very helpful in those situations. Like you don't always go to the same people for one kind of problem. Mm -hmm. Um, And, but beyond that, it's, when you're communicating with someone like on the phone or um, on like uh, a message board or something, part of the like effort that you're doing is modeling that person in your brain um, and literally like building a version of them, uh, not necessarily picturing them (laughs) unless Mm -hmm. you're like super visual, but like having um, an actual, like that cognitive process of like seeing, like imagining the person you're interacting with and like their specificity and who you are and interaction with them um, it takes up as much as, uh, like the other normal social things. It's like why having like a hands-free device to talk on the phone while you're driving, isn't any safer. You're doing the same cognitive tasks.
0: Oh, interesting. Okay.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, like there's a, it, since it's a bit more tiring, it's a bit like, it is just literally cognitively more difficult to communicate remotely because we, need to be conceptualizing the social relationship we have and the person that we're interacting with in order to like build social solidarity and do some of those things, which is possible, but limited through technology.
0: So do you have like, so if you're practicing social distancing and you're not completely self isolated, are there other things to do? Basically you're just saying like, make sure to try and keep up with your friends. Um,
1: yeah, there- yeah. And
0: sorry. go ahead. No, go ahead.
1: <laughs> yeah. Um and I mean obviously there's um depending on where you are, because there's a lot of differences in like an urban area, it's very difficult to avoid people anyway. I live in New York City. Mm-hmm. Um and if I feel extremely lonely, I mean I can still go to one of the open coffee shops or go to the library and stay like six feet from anyone. Um, and just like not touch anything and like wash my hands, mm-hmm. um, and like be slightly more at risk. Um, but I mean, I'm also like an able able bodied, super healthy, like 30 year old. It's not, um, I'm not in one of those cases where I might be like more isolated, like the people who are able to physically get out, if not, like while trying to reduce the degree to which they're exposing themselves or someone else to uh, a contagion, like, mm-hmm. Those people kind of have to be checking on the sorts of folks who can't. Um, actually, uh, Zoe said it when they were on your podcast as well. Sort of the people who are more at risk, um, who don't have the ability to like quit working or don't have the ability to like leave their homes or are particularly immunocompromised. Um, like the people who are able to check on them probably should. If you know people like that in your life, instead of like waiting for them to say, "Hey, I need help," maybe see how they're doing. Because, um, like I there's a lot of people you might know that you haven't thought about like, oh, this person might actually need help right now.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I guess that gets back to what you're saying about avoiding the sort of out of sight, out of mind kind of mentality.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Even if it's just like thinking about um, what is my social network? Um, Like in the terms of like preparedness for uh, disasters on the like average, any person regardless of inclination could do it. Uh, Like the first thing is kind of like, okay, who are the people I know? What do they know how to do? And how can I help them? And how can they help me? Mm-hmm. Um, like, you know, I I know people who, if there were some serious medical emergency, I could talk to them. But, you know, I also get like a couple of texts a week from like a friend who's extra anxious about something. Um, <laughs> like there's sort of a, everyone has these different skills and like thinking of your social networks partly as like social infrastructure. Mm-hmm. Um is, like, helpful for preparing for these things because, to a certain degree, some of the uh, informational public health and, like, supportive infrastructure that's, like, at the, like, higher, more hierarchical level is replicated by, like, resource sharing and mutual aid if you're thinking of your relationships in that way. Um, But oftentimes it's just like, oh, yeah, I know my neighbor, not like, oh, my neighbor might need some help too. (laughs) Right. Yeah.
0: Yeah, one of the things that I... I've talked to a couple different people. I've interviewed about um, it's basically the importance of agency during crisis. And oh yeah, this is a particularly interesting one because in some ways the the lack of federal response, uh, at least in the United States, and I know also in Britain, it's even worse. I think <laughs> um, has kind of left this hole that is being filled by mutual aid networks that are are cropping up. Um, I'm wondering if there's anything like that going on in New York City that you're around or, uh, basically how mental health can plug into like mental health work can plug into, um, mutual aid in crisis.
1: Yeah. Um, there's not a lot going on that I'm aware of. I'm certain there are things happening. I've seen more, um, like internal to the groups I'm involved with people supporting each other and like, providing advice about, like, you know, if someone's, like, been sick, coming and bringing them food and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but as far as, like, uh, mental health responses, um, the, the nature of this crisis has been making me think a bit about um, resiliency, much as Zoe was talking about in your previous podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, the, the Jane Adams Collective uh, released a book, more of a pamphlet, um, <laughs> like, about um, mutual aid, trauma, and resiliency. Mm -hmm. um and one of the focuses there is about the way that we respond to crisis and mass crises and these sorts of things and obviously like there are things that we can do now to uh help vulnerable people and mitigate the worst parts of this um but a lot of the things that are the most useful are long-term and preparatory um for trauma or for uh preparation for a public health crisis Um, And generally, it's sort of like that, that idea of resiliency is like a collective and social idea, like you're having to build these things as a group. Um, And like, part of that's because the way that we tend to respond to crisis and the way that we like, put urgency on things is very short term. That's a broad generalization, but it seems to be fairly accurate. Um, That we jump from crisis to crisis rather than... (laughs) Yeah, yeah, we're great at that. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, you know, at the cost of things that we are building that are useful, uh, that are useful in the day to day, but also are like, have the seed to being something that's self-sustaining or, you know, survival programs and that kind of thing. If more of those are up and running just on a daily basis, then the need to create them suddenly when some disaster occurs is like a lot less present. You just mm-hmm. need to prepare them for the specific thing that's happening. Um
0: It seems like that's often a problem that we also run into, not just like governmental structures, you know, that aren't prepared for crisis, but even like as anarchists or, you know, people believe in horizontal structures, we often are jumping from crisis to crisis. But I I think there's a, it's hard to maintain, it's hard to maintain counter infrastructure when the traditional infrastructure is sort of working and meeting people's needs and also suppressing any counter infrastructure. So I oh, I, yeah. I want to like give ourselves the sort of credit to say that in some ways it's it's a very uphill battle to try and maintain counter infrastructure when <laughs> when it's not crisis.
1: <laughs> oh, absolutely. And I mean like the anything good will be crushed by someone um, unless you defend it. So like I mean it's definitely an uphill battle. Um I mean, but some of those smaller, like, connections that we don't think of as infrastructure are Uh building blocks for that. I mean, like, the affinity group is mostly mythical, um, in my experience of the world. Like, but, you know, collections of people who are willing to do things together do exist, um, more frequently in my experience. And, like, sometimes those connections, if we're actually examining and thinking about the way that we relate to each other and, like, what our, like, skills, needs, and risk assessments as a collective are, um, like, those smaller connections can be built into something more useful. Um, Because, I mean, the lack of, like, a strong kind of social connection um, and, like, even just strong mental health infrastructure, like being able to talk about your problems or uh, the way Mm -hmm. that organizing in general is not really open for people who are mentally ill. um, There's not really a place to be kind of crazy. And even if you're like pretty like sane passing it's not super easy to like l- l- not have those things interrupt your ability to be part of a collective working on some of those things so like a lot of these things while they're uh you know obviously more obvious now and more immediately pressing and all of that like but one of the most important ways to resist that like crisis and urgency and continually having our like hope smashed by the difficult situation that we're all in. Um, I don't know. It kind of requires co-opting a bit of that, like uh, the politics is personal, you know?
0: Yeah. Um, um,
1: It's like that embrace song. Your emotions are nothing but politics.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, okay. So if one of the main things that we can be doing is, I mean, it's this sort of beautiful and interesting irony. The main thing we can do is, Strengthen our interpersonal connections. <laughs> yeah. Um, while practicing social distancing, um, are there things that you can suggest to people who, like, say, you're someone who is more at risk, or are like more fully isolated, um, you know, or are cut off from communication? Uh, you know, I know that i <laughs> I only have limited electricity where I live. <laughs> And it's not too hard for me to imagine spending some time where my, my phone isn't working or something like that. Um, what are things that people can do to basically, like, keep themselves, uh, I don't want to say keep themselves sane, but keep themselves <laughs> from having their mental health deteriorate when yeah. uh, when social connections aren't available? or are less available
1: yeah and i mean for some people that's absolutely going to be true um finding social connections is hard um, and harder than it's ever been in a lot of ways um but there there are a lot of like some of the standard like i self-care advice it's limited Mm -hmm. but like finding coping skills and things that are helpful for you um and like also having an idea of like when that might be done, like having some finality to it. So, you know, normally you need to be in like isolation for 14 days if you think you might have it. Um, you, prob- you might isolate yourself longer if you have like particular vulnerability to respiratory illnesses. Um, um, but finding like one regular sleep is always really helpful. Um, even if there's no one around, it's important to at least try to like have the same amount of sleep every night, even if it's like not the same times. Um, that can go a pretty far away along with like finding things that you actually enjoy doing. Um, Mm -hmm. fighting off boredom is pretty hard. Um, and boredom and loneliness go together pretty well. Um, they, they really kind of stoke each other. (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. so, you know, obviously you don't want to just be sitting, trying to entertain yourself all the time. Um, like take up knitting. (laughs) Um, unfortunately a lot of it's like really personal, um, trying to find things that are useful for you or that like are somewhat distracting from your uh, least pleasant thoughts and inclinations is useful in the short term, but uh-huh. that's not good long-term advice. Um, so,
0: <laughs> so video games is not a long-term solution. It's a short, Right, solution. but if you want
1: to play them for the next two weeks, please do. Okay.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Cause it's like, if you don't have the social connections that would help, uh reduce what is ultimately a socially indicated problem, like a uh, psychological distress mm-hmm. um like then you aren't going to be able to solve the problem. you can mitigate it and cope with it and make it less like onerous to deal with um but it's going to be like a reaction to the symptoms rather than something that's actually radical and gets to the cause of the problem um, okay. but like coping skills, grounding skills, finding entertainment that you like. Um, if you can like physically go outside without exposing yourself to a bunch of people, uh, nature is awesome if you can find it and get it. Uh, yeah.
0: Yeah. That's the thing I'm like lucky about. I, uh, you know, I sometimes wish I had running water or uh <laughs> consistent internet or like, you know, um, I'm for listeners. We had to navigate this interview based on the fact that I can't go to the recording studio I normally go to because someone who lives there. Is immunocompromised, and yeah. so I don't have internet at home enough to uh, to do any kind of interview. So this has been kind of fun just to set up. Um, but the one upside I have is that I literally walk outside my front door into the woods um, yeah. and can go, you know, hiking through the woods if I want. Um, I don't know whether I would trade that for easy access to video games or not. Maybe. Uh, <laughs> if it was only a week, I might, I might prefer video games for a week. Uh, but longer term nature might be better.
1: Yeah. I have access to unlimited video games and I've gotten bored of them.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You don't really get bored of nature. It just isn't like as wildly (laughs) distracting or entertaining.
1: Um, Right. You can be bored in nature, but that's about it.
0: (laughs) Yeah. So, so one of the things that I had, learned when I did um cognitive behavioral therapy was Mm -hmm. this idea and you've brought it up and I just want to like talk about it a little bit more get you to talk about it a little bit more is this idea of um picking a a deadline like knowing you know as a coping skill like I just have to get through this for the next x length of time or something oh yeah is that a healthy coping skill or is that unhealthy coping skill
1: <laughs> yeah it's so that's kind of the thing the whole unhealthy even that dichotomy like all binaries is uh pretty bullshit um okay. it's useful sometimes and it's use it's not useful other times um it's kind of like you know it's not terrible if someone has one drink but if they have 20 it's a problem mm-hmm. um coping skills are kind of the same way um so like uh it is really helpful when there is something real in the world that is presumably finite um, where you can just be like, okay, I just got to make it through the next 14 days, see what the world's like and make a new decision. Then can be mm-hmm. like, help allay your anxiety. If there's actually going to be anything different about the world in 14 days. Mm-hmm. But I mean, if you're like, will my depression be better in 14 days? I mean, I don't know, dude. Like, <laughs> um, So it's sort of a, it's useful. And f- a lot of the anxiety I think uh, that's happening now and in general is about uncertainty and lack of control. Mm -hmm. Um, even the like state national government, like the hierarchical response is a controlling one. Um, partly because like they're trying to reduce uncertainty, um, and make things like more legibly organized or like, you know, basically hide the disorder that is under all of these things, Mm -hmm. um, less effectively than they used to thankfully. Um, but like, a lot of the like controlling nature and like that tendency to try and to like reduce uncertainty is one that we also have like cognitively. Um, and to a certain extent, like thinking of these thoughts as something that we can control and that we can, uh, really like master is, uh, a problem in and of itself. Um, a lot of like alternative, uh, or like newer therapies, uh, third stream therapies, um, like uh acceptance and commitment therapy or dialectical behavioral therapy mm-hmm. um have sort of a different theory of thought than cognitive behavioral therapy um cognitive behavioral therapy the interventions do work, so I wouldn't shy anyone away from it um, but the actual like belief about how thought works that it's structured on is inaccurate because um, thoughts kind of just happen um, most people have like had the thought like when they're on the Like subway platform, oh, I'm going to jump in front of that train, it doesn't really mean anything. Mm -hmm. Um, And most thoughts are like that. And to a certain extent, anxiety is about trying to control those thoughts or believing their truth, um, like that you're connected to them in some really real way. Um, And I mean, this is something that like both from like a therapeutic background and from personal experience, I have like a particular interest in. Um, I had severe OCD and a large portion of that was about, like specifically, OCD is about controlling what's going on. You're trying to do very systematized, ritualistic, controlled, and precise things to control things that are completely unpredictable and impossible to do anything about.
0: Mm-hmm. I mean, that's uh, it's interesting to bring up OCD stuff. I don't; it's not something that I, I struggle with particularly myself. But I, um, you know, the other day, my uh, my landmate caught me spraying down the handle to the the barn, the communal space um, with a disinfectant. And Mm -hmm. and he looked at me and he was like, we just need to make sure that we don't keep doing this (laughs) once it no longer makes sense. And, and that's like a, that's a worry that I haven't had to process too hard yet. You know, I, I, I'm just kind of trying to get through this next chunk of time with I'm also pretty, like I'm not as concerned for my own health in this particular environment, but I, you know, believe very strongly in not transmitting it to people who are more vulnerable. And also I'm incredibly medically anxious. So I know <laughs> that even though I'll be like physically fine if I get COVID, I will uh struggle mentally um, very, hard. Yeah, very hard. And yeah. and so I, I what are some do you do you know any good coping skills then for not letting these like, in my head, like neural pathways cement themselves, these these things that we might do during crisis, like social distancing or disinfecting everything, um, <laughs> how do we prevent them from becoming unhealthy habits later?
1: Yeah. Um, one of the like most useful things that I've found is uh, it's pretty similar to something the Stoics used to do, um, which was sort of like negative visualization. Mm-hmm. um and, and more or less like like the idea of like a memento mori is like a version of a negative visualization um but like
0: that means for almost everybody will die right
1: yeah yeah like you have a jar of marbles and you take one out of the like days i have left jar and throw it into the days that i've already lived jar every day or something like that whoa that's intense um, <laughs> yeah well and i mean like it's calming in a certain way at, like reminding mm-hmm. you that like this is finite and these things do matter but like you also mm. can't do anything about it. That that marble going to that day is going no matter what you do. Mm-hmm. Um, and like acceptance in that regard, like um, in dealing with uh, in, in in CBT, ACT, act like any of the ways that someone would deal with like a a phobia to something or like a OCD. Uh, generally, exposure is part of that, and mm-hmm. like the mechanism by which that's helpful is the fact that it forces you to accept that worst case scenario. Um, like if you're getting like exposure therapy for harm obsessions, um, an extremely common thing with people with OCD where they're um, extremely worried that they'll harm themselves or someone else. They mm-hmm. never would, but it's, you know, uh, very common. Um, <laughs> like effectively you have to desensitize yourself to and accept the possibility that you could do that. Um, like I, I wasn't able to drive for about a year um, because I thought I would drive my car into the center divider and kill a bunch of people. Mm-hmm. Um, I can drive now but only because I have hundreds and hundreds of times imagined doing that and just kind of accepted the consequences. Yeah. So like in this instance, like uh, for the disease stuff, it's like, take the precautions you need to now. While it's obviously reasonable and necessary because we don't want to, you know, say I'm not going to get it and go and get a whole bunch of people who wouldn't be getting sick, sick. Mm -hmm. Um, But as far as like your own personal risk, to a certain, accept, uh, a certain extent, like kind of go through in your head, okay, if I did get it, what is the process? What's the whole worst-case scenario? Um, mm-hmm. And if you're prepared for that, then anything else is kind of fine.
0: Okay. So my, yeah. my, my habit of uh, every time I get on an airplane, I accept my own death. That is yes. A, that's a reasonable thing.
1: That is exactly what I mean. Yeah, every time I get in a car.
0: Okay. Well, what's interesting is is, um, with my own experience of uh, self-therapizing with this kind of tactic is that for a while I couldn't drive because of my anxiety, because I would imagine, um, well, I just couldn't control everything that was happening. Like, if there was suddenly something in the middle of the road, I couldn't Mm -hmm. stop in time. So, when I did drive, I would drive, you know, like the... Grandma, I'm destined to be minus the children part, and I, I wouldn't be able to go fast because I I wouldn't if I went fast I wouldn't be able to control everything, and so for a long time I I um for a long time was a much more conscious thing, and now it's back to unconscious thing. Now I don't I don't worry when I drive anymore. I haven't been able to reach that same thing with flying. I don't know if I ever will. But
1: yeah, yeah, I definitely know what you mean. I mean that's almost completely analogous because it is like that lack of control it's the same reason some of the like most ineffective responses to the virus have been made like on a national level Mm -hmm. you know Mm -hmm. you want to control like people coming in from europe even though that's kind of pointless like you know those kinds of things are just hey let's control this as much as we can we can't do anything about it it's very uncertain (laughs) yeah we're not very good at dealing with uncertainty, and accepting it is a huge boon to one's mental health.
0: <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. Just accepting that. I mean, I, I think about doctors having to do triage or whatever, or doctors oh, yeah. having to work at all where they accept the fact that they will kill patients uh, by accident. Mm-hmm. Um, Absolutely. It takes a, a particularly. uh, good understanding of, of um, a threat assessment, risk mitigation, or whatever. Um, can you talk a little bit about the Jane Addams project that you work on?
1: Absolutely. Um, so the Jane Addams Collective has been around in different iterations for about five years. you um, have done a lot of different projects. Um, the, one of the bigger ones um, was developing a mutual aid self-therapy. Um, which is an alternative therapy model that isn't a hierarchical, doesn't require a therapist um, that can just be done by like three people, three or four people. Um, And we've done workshops on that where we've taught people how to do it. Um, We're a book about it called Mutual Aid Self Therapy um, is uh, coming out fairly soon. It'll be on like AK and stuff.
0: It's Um, actually my, uh, it's sitting in my (laughs) inbox to lay out. (laughs)
1: <laughs> i know this
0: yeah i'm just admitting this to the, the audience if the book is taking too long to come out audience please write me and yell at me
1: i mean you could also write us and yell at us because we took so long to get it to you um, <laughs> uh but yeah so like that therapy model we've tried it in a lot of different iterations and we sort of like hammered out It's most useful if it's used by a lot of people and collectively Mm -hmm. um, and something that's accessible as easily as possible to as many people as possible, because like access to this kind of thing, not everyone can afford a therapist. And if they can, your therapist is a snitch anyway. (laughs) So like, it's sort of, you know, (laughs) there should be something else. This may not be a replacement for therapy, but it's certainly helpful. And the hierarchy of uh, dealing with the therapist is not there. Um, but that's one thing that we do. We also, um, while we were working on making uh, mast uh, more like usable by people who weren't us, so we wouldn't mm-hmm. have to like teach people in our, you know, physically go and teach people every time we wanted to transfer that knowledge, we wanted to make it like anyone anywhere could do it. Mm-hmm. Um, while we were trying to do that, we realized that the we needed to like address trauma in different ways than we were addressing other psychological problems. Um, So in our like examinations of that, we also wrote uh, a a small, very small book um, called uh, Mutual Aid, Trauma and Resiliency, Uh um, which is about collective responses to um, traumatic events and like building both individual and collective resiliency. Um, A lot of the... I probably should have just read from that and picked some of those tips um, for, like, what should you do to, like, deal with things when you're alone or with people. Um, but th- that's also sort of uh, built out of the fact that, like, that is a collective thing that needs to be prepared for ahead of time, um, much like any kind of crisis like this. Um, so that's sort of like a, how we think one could do that in terms of reducing the rate of post-traumatic stress um so that the like traumas that are inevitable to occur in the process of organizing or living um are at least not going to eventually you know mis- metastasize into ptsd um
0: do you have any yeah, do you know enough of it off the top of your head to just kind of give some like a, a basic overview or tips or anything like that about mutual uh, aid trauma response
1: Yes, I do. I knew I had it open here for a reason.
0: <laughs> uh, basically, our whole model
1: was based around the idea of resiliency, um, which is both something like individually and collectively that helps deal with trauma. Um, and individual resiliency is oftentimes like some of those like ability to deal with crisis sort of things. Um, and like a lot of the, the nature of trauma often involves like your expectations about reality have been broken um like for instance people who are like um who have uh, strong political inclinations like uh regular people caught up by a horrible dictatorship um who are tortured um have higher rates of ptsd than like revolutionaries who are caught up by that same dictatorship and tortured okay um they both experience trauma from those experiences because they're terrible um but like one of the fundamental differences is that the person who was fighting the regime didn't have any illusions about what was going to happen to them. Um, it was just as horrible, but their worldview wasn't broken. They didn't have to like completely reassess everything they understand about, you know, they they never had the thought, Oh, you know, I know the government does that sometimes, but they'd never do it to me. Mm -hmm. Um, and the same thing's true for like other traumatic events. Like if you're in a group that does a lot of like, um, protests and demos like there are certain kinds of things that you kind of know might happen that you could prepare for and think about um if you do anti-fascist work there are other kinds of things that are even more trauma potentially inducing that you should think about Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Um, but uh let's see i have like more concrete ones because that sounds useful (laughs) (laughs) Um, okay so um like A few of the things that are really useful individually in dealing with any crisis and change in general, um, but specifically for trauma, um, is uh, being able to like detach and conceptualize problems. Um, so like that negative visualization thing I was talking about, Mm -hmm. um, is a little bit of like being able to distance yourself from the like horror of the thing you're worried about, um, because you're conceptualizing it in a more constructed way that's separate from like its emotional strength to you. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, self-determination, I think you already have talked about that a little bit, how like taking agency and like not just relying on what's around you to, um, you know, actually like knowing that you can do something about it, um, even if it's just like calling your friends or uh, not freaking out too much <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and uh, like altruism, which obviously harder now, That's what we've been talking about, <laughs> but like, <laughs> Yeah. Um, and a lot of those things play off into collective traits as well, because like they build into if you have people who can support you in like building a sense of safety, um, because, like dealing with trauma and post traumatic stress in like a treatment sense is usually focused on building a sense of um, safety in which to ex- like go through the trauma. So it's like you're removing the extremely like negative feelings so that the person actually can process the horrible things that have happened. -hmm. Um and like that safety is a social factor. Like you're you can build that in a group and like oftentimes traumas tendency to cause mistrust in especially if like it's like sexual trauma or like, you know, someone assaulted you or something, like those kinds of traumas cause you to distrust the same social mechanisms of safety that would give you resilience against future traumas. Right. Um so like building a sense of collective safety is like also about material support like you feel a lot safer if you can pay rent or you know someone will help you out if you can't um but you know there's a lot of that collective building of it is really hard to do in the moment because you know we're you know, if you're chasing the crisis and the crises right. are constant so i'm not quite sure how we get out of that just yet
0: but well it sounds like i mean one of the things that the mutual aid groups that i've been sort of keeping track of or participating in to some small degree uh you know, the kind of immediate sense is how do we make sure that the most vulnerable are kept safe? How do we make sure that our immunocompromised and elderly friends have food that arrives and how do we make sure that that food is safe? You know, that's, that's the kind of the most immediate thing. But then the thing that people are also already starting to talk about doing is, um, you know, also everyone's freaking out because everyone's out of work. And, uh, you know, it's funny, I have this album coming out and I have to um, pay a mastering, uh, you know, an audio technician to master it. And then I'm like, well, this is the the last money that I might see for a little while, you know? <laughs> and, um, but it's also maybe the last money that she's going to see for a while. And, um, and but the, so that people are starting to talk about that, how do we meet our needs? How do we, you know, maybe mutual aid response to this is going to have to start looking like, even from a mental health point of view, knowing that if someone tries to evict you for your unpaid rent, that a lot of very angry people will show up. Of course, that also is very complicated because do we want to have these large gatherings? (laughs) You know,
1: I mean, it might be more effective if the landlord's afraid he'll get sick.
0: That's true. God. I keep thinking about mask of the red death and I can't decide like, um, I think I've mentioned this probably even on this podcast before the post story about all the rich people who go and hide uh, from the plague and then all die of the plague, you know? Um, anyway.
1: Yeah. um, Just desserts. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Um, so can you talk a little bit more about mast and which is not necessarily related to this particular crisis, but I think is, uh, one of the most promising projects that I've heard anything about over the past several years. Um, Can you kind of give a bird's eye overview of it or is it dangerous to give someone half the information about (laughs) how to therapize? And also can you talk a little bit about like why people should believe that you all are basically, I know that it's put together by a bunch of medical health professionals (laughs) with years and years of experience. But if you could talk about that as well, that's not just like some stuff, some people made up
1: yeah totally. I mean, to be fair, it is stuff some people made up um, <laughs> but I can uh, attest to our authority at least in topic, if not in power mm-hmm. um, but okay so uh mast itself um we like cannibalized from a lot of different existing therapy models um and have like worked on them in different iterations so in the development of mast um we've had different open houses um I think we've had uh, we, we've had a few of them. We've had at least like 10 over the like years, um, mm-hmm. probably more, but I haven't been there for all of them. Um, and like effectively um, the, like over that time we've like found which things worked in the context of people actually doing it, which things were easily understandable by like people who weren't us mm-hmm. um, and like more and more ways to like take our hands off of the wheel so that it was something that was done by like people themselves rather than like the like someone having like the knowledge and authority kind of like by de facto like tendencies leading things. Mm-hmm. Um, so a, a lot of the stuff that we take from, we take some things from CBT, um, some things from narrative therapy um, and some things from uh, DBT and like other different uh, therapy models um But basically, this has been a trial and error process that we've been doing for the last over five years of actually doing therapy with uh, small triads. Mm -hmm. Um, So the actual therapy is we we have uh, triads of people, um, which obviously is three people, (laughs) um, (laughs) and to reduce the hierarchy and make it easier to do this process. Um, Generally, uh, each person um, has a turn as the narrator, as the person who's talking about Um, what they're dealing with and, you know, trying to resolve their problem. Um, Mm -hmm. And the two other people are supporting them. Um, And both of them are sort of trying to, you know, help get the person to recognize something they wouldn't be able to um, without uh, someone else sort of, like, poking at them a little bit. Uh, (laughs) And uh, each will take turns doing that. So everyone's in every role. Um, Everyone is a supporter twice and a narrator once. Um, And to a certain extent, like... The process of knowing like, what um, cognitive tools or like, therapeutic tools, they're all in the book and they're very simple. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, which ones are like used? Knowing that someone's using one on you um, really does subvert that hierarchy to a certain extent and makes you feel like, oh, right, I would have told someone to do this. I just didn't know I needed it right then um so like collectively useful uh done in groups of three or four generally um and focused on reducing hierarchy and uh like autonomy um there's a few different phases to it and we have some more specific um ideas behind its mechanism of action um but before i get into those if i do at all um the jane adams collective itself Mm -hmm. um has done a whole bunch of different things but um about half of us are um, licensed therapists or um, social workers. Almost all of us work in the field um, except for me now, because I uh, don't have the heart anymore, (laughs) Um, at least not to do it in this context. Um, And all of us have like had a lot of experience. I don't know, like collectively probably like 50 years of experience working in different mental health settings. Mm -hmm. Um, And all of us have, been anarchists for a fairly long time smoky longer than most of us Um,
0: (laughs) smoky's been an anarchist longer than a lot of people i know have been alive so
1: yeah i didn't want to make him feel bad (laughs) 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 Um, but uh so you know we we have some sort of uh also uh important to note in the next year um starting in next year somewhere around like february march we're um planning on opening a community mental health clinic.
0: Okay.
1: Um, okay. And like part of that is because some of the things that some of the infrastructure that we need to deal with, like mental health crises, uh, just the world collapsing <laughs> yeah. um, are not there. And one of the best ways we can do that is by trying to provide like access to mental health care in the way we know how. Mm-hmm. Um, so we'll have more details about it in the future, obviously um, Jane Adams um, but we're planning on actually putting some of these things more directly in practice in a clinic setting, um, also operating on non-hierarchical models and uh, being more like community focused than like a therapist's office where you just kind of drop in.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, well, we're, uh, uh, do you have any like kind of final thoughts about, um, about mental health response to the current crisis or anything that you want to like shout out or talk about?
1: yeah um check in on your sad friends <laughs> mm-hmm. if if you know anyone who's like got a tendency towards if you haven't heard from someone in a lot a little while like y- even if you don't think you know anyone like that you certainly do um uh, <laughs> if you haven't like made a point of trying to like figure out the you know who around you might need something um you might get some help and some social validation out of that too but like helping people and reaching out to people who might need it is uh it works almost better than people reaching out to you (laughs) Okay. as far as like validation and like a lot of people might need help. Think of the people, you know, who might.
0: Yeah. All right. Well, uh, thank you so much for being on the podcast and uh, thanks for all the work that you're doing. And yeah, thanks so much.
1: Yeah. Thanks so much for having me.
0: Thanks so much for listening. I, I hope you enjoy it. Uh, I'm open to feedback. My email address is magpie at net, And I'm open to suggestions for the show, of course. You can find me on Twitter at magpiekilljoy, or Instagram at margaretkilljoy or Facebook at margaretkilljoy. all that crap. I also support myself through my Patreon. I kind of want to keep that... I'm not trying to shout that out, so it's super hard right now. I mean, I do need it to live, but... Everyone needs work to live, unfortunately, in the system we live in, and that's getting very hard for a lot of people right now. And so I'm not trying to go super hard to to hawk that. But if you want to, you can support me, and I would greatly appreciate it. If you make less money than I make off of Patreon, then contact me and I'll give you all my content for free. In particular, I would like to thank Chris and Nora and Willow and Haas the Dog and Kirk and Natalie and Eleanor you all really make it possible for me to keep up with this work. So thank you. And just remember, it's not institutions that keep people safe. It's, it's us that keep people safe. And I don't mean not the people who are in the institutions. I mean, all of the work that is done by institutions is actually done by people. Governments don't build cities. Workers build cities. You know, um, it's not, the organizational structures themselves that do the work it's the people that do the work and so when the status quo is disrupted it's important to remember that we still know how to grow food we still know how to do medical work we still know how to organize ourselves and each other and that's not going to go away anytime soon so even in times of self isolation like this, we need each other and we can help each other and yeah let's uh let's all keep each other safe. Thanks so much.